Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 11, Mountaintop Madness. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. First off, I apologise for the irregular episode schedule recently. It's a combination of thesis deadlines and a particularly annoying cold, which you might still be able to hear in my voice, but the show must go on. Last time, we covered the final years of James Stuart's reign as merely the King of Scotland, where he oversaw, at least in part, a final series of trials which dwarfed the much more famous events at North Berwick. These trials shared many similarities with its sister witch hunt, namely the supposed attempts on the king's life. We will return to James in a future episode, most likely in a mini-series covering the Tudor and Stuart reigns of England, which I am genuinely looking forward to. The English Reformation, the expansion of the legal code, the gunpowder plots, Shakespeare, the wars of the three kingdoms, and the short and bloody adventures of the Witchfinder General. But sadly, dear listeners, today is not that day. Today, we cross the English Channel once again and return to the European continent, high up in the Jura and the Alps. We will be focusing on events within the territory of the Republic of Geneva, which of course played host to one of the fathers of the European Reformation, John Calvin of Calvinism fame, whose influence has led the city to gaining a reputation for its harsh treatment of witches. We'll decide whether that reputation is justified today. We will also travel a few hundred miles to the east, to the county of Vaduz, whose witch trials had a permanent impact on the political map of Europe, surviving to the modern day. We will start with the city of Geneva. Situated on the most southwestern edge of Lake Geneva, the city is the capital of the Canton of Geneva, and is surrounded by the Alps and the Jura mountain chains. Largely French-speaking in the modern day, the city was nevertheless part of the Holy Roman Empire for many centuries. For the bulk of this time, from 1154, the city was a prince-bishopric, ruled, as you would expect, by a prince-bishop. But as with much of the Holy Roman Empire, it was not quite this simple. The House of Savoy, a royal house that originated from, you guessed it, the Savoy region on the other side of the Alps, continually attempted to exert influence and outright domination of Geneva, sometimes succeeding and sometimes failing. They were contested in this rule by both the Prince Bishops of Geneva as well as the Counts of Geneva. I haven't mentioned the Counts of Geneva yet, have I? Well, it it doesn't really matter since their line came to an end in 1394, and the House of Savoy took over their possessions, strengthening their claim to rule the bishopric and becoming the Dukes of Savoy after 1416. The Dukes of Savoy ruled over the city, sometimes holding the bishopric themselves with the assistance of a grand council that grew to include 200 deputies, who decided on political and administrative matters, as well as electing the bishop after 1490. Whether the Savoyard Dukes wanted this assistance is unclear, and friction between the Dukes and the council that supposedly ruled in their name grew over time. In 1519, the council tried to form an alliance between themselves and the free imperial city of Freiburg, which had itself been a subject of Savoy until 1477. This apparently displeased the duke, who responded with an invasion of the city and the suspension of the Grand Council. From here on, Savoyard influence over the city began to decline, while an independence faction continued to grow. Various overtures from the reigning duke, Charles III, failed to appease the Genevans who even petitioned the Pope to have their own duke excommunicated. 
The Pope was not convinced, however, and Charles became very cross with his misbehaving territory, and sent in another invasion force to destroy this annoying independence movement. The leaders of the faction fled to Freiburg, and Charles arrived in his newly pacified city, where the now-diminished Grand Council welcomed him with open arms and acknowledged that he was the true and only sovereign of the city. This meeting was later called the Assembly of Halberds, which perhaps gives some indication of why Charles got such a positive response. When the Savoyards inevitably returned across the Alps, the Independence faction inevitably returned, and in the following elections to the Grand Council, they gained an overwhelming majority. They subsequently voted to secede from the rule of Savoy, and representatives of Freiburg, Bern, and other cantons that made up the Swiss Confederacy promised to protect and support the city as part of their confederation, which Geneva joined in February of 1526. The arrival of the Reformation in Geneva was gradual at first. Protestant refugees from France began arriving from 1523, and found that the citizens of the city were quite receptive to the new ideas. Catholicism within Geneva was in a poor position. The clergy had protested the popular alliance with Bern and Freiburg, attempting a short-lived rebellion against the move in 1526. Many of the high-level priests were from the Savoyard nobility, and in July 1527, many were expelled from the territory for their perceived sympathy to the House of Savoy. The bishop himself fled the city. Out of fear for his life from both his former flock, as well as the Duke of Savoy, he headed to Gex, less than 10 miles from Geneva. While initially supporting the independence of Geneva, he began to collude with Charles to have the alliance with the other Swiss cantons annulled in order to restore Savoyard rule as well as his own bishopric. When this came to light, in January of 1528, the Grand Council formally adopted Lutheranism, prompting the excommunication of Geneva by the Pope. Charles never truly gave up on recovering his rebellious province, and while not taking formal action against Geneva out of fear of a Swiss intervention, he tacitly approved raids and robberies against Genevan territory and trade, and gained the support of both France and the Empire. His best act, in my opinion, was the establishment of the knightly Order of the Spoon. Yes, the Order of the Spoon. This was not an official order, merely a group of knights that were in favour of returning Geneva to the rule of Charles. Why they were called the Order of the Spoon, I'm not sure, but they attempted to seize the city in battle, climbing the walls with ladders on the 25th of March, 1529. It failed, and the Spoon's reputation was tarnished. They returned with the backing of both the exiled Bishop of Geneva, as well as the forces of Charles. The invading force comprised of roughly 800 soldiers, while the Genevans could only field about 600. Even with walls, Geneva's chances were dire, but a huge number of reinforcements arrived from its allies, Bern and Freiburg, despite their earlier scepticism about maintaining their alliance in the face of French and Imperial opposition. This relief force was apparently over 10,000, which seems almost excessive, and I somewhat doubt it was this large. In the face of this horde, and with the Emperor declining to participate on their side, the invaders withdrew, and the spoons went back in the draw. I mean, they went back to the drawing board. Relations between Savoy and Geneva had their ups and downs over the following years, as did the city's relationship with Protestantism and Catholicism, which aren't strictly relevant to today's episode. The important thing to know is that in 1536, two events occurred that would have had lasting ramifications on Genevan history. The first is a public oath, taken by all residents of the city in May, 
where they swore allegiance to Lutheranism and declared their city a republic. The second was the arrival of John Calvin, perhaps the second most important figure in the entire European Reformation after Luther himself. Calvin resided in Geneva from now until his death in 1564, except for a period of three years when he was exiled by his enemies in the local establishment. His influence on the city is continuously debated to this day, on topics as varied as the establishment of a welfare system for citizens and refugees, and the growing educational system, as well as, of course, the impact of Calvinism on the city itself. So why am I telling you all this? Surely it wasn't just to talk about the Knights of the Spoon and to get a few terrible puns in. Well, the puns are only part of it. A significant part, that is true, but the legitimate reason was to give some context to the events of the following century, where Switzerland, and Geneva in particular, suffered the worst batch of witch hunts in their history. There were trials previously, of course. Switzerland has the dubious honour of hosting the infamous outbreak in Simenthal, involving the judge Peter of Griers, who passed his records on to the Dominican friar and early witchcraft theorist Johann Neider. The confessions from these trials described the witches repudiating their true faith, paying homage to the devil, and a small matter of murdering and then cannibalising 13 infant children. These accounts became the poster child, pun only partly intended, of the horrors that witches were capable of. They also described the supernatural defences available to witches, with the authorities becoming stricken with body spasms and attacked with terrible smells as they attempted to arrest the suspects. Another chronicler, Johann Frund, described a witch cult in the early 15th century in southern Switzerland, where, as historian Richard Kierkefer describes, the devil seeks out men who are in a state of doubt or despair, and promises to make them rich, powerful, and successful, and to punish those who have done them harm. First, though, they must dedicate themselves to him, deny their former faith, and make some kind of sacrifice to him. A black sheep, one of their bodily limbs to be taken after their death, or some other offering. Frund tells of wild assemblies in which the devil appeared in bestial form and encouraged the witches to commit foul deeds. The witches are supposed to have flown to orgies or elsewhere on chairs that they anointed with an ungent. Calvin's Geneva has traditionally been depicted as horrendously severe in its witch trials. One historian, the late Hugh Trevor Roper, wrote that in Geneva, which before had been free from witch trials, Calvin introduced a new reign of terror. In the 60 years after his coming, 150 witches were burned. The truth of this will be covered later, but it is true that Geneva held a number of trials in the years following Calvin's arrival, with 30 confessions being preserved from before 1574. But the first one that I've come across was actually during Calvin's brief exile, Jeanette Clerc was arrested in 1539 after her neighbour's cow suddenly died after Clerc had fed it a strange herb, which she claimed she had harvested on the eve of the day of St John the Baptist. After being tortured, Jeanette readily admitted to causing the death of the aforesaid cow as well as several others, and continued to give a full description of her initiation into witchdom. In the words of E. William Monta, she had given herself to a black devil with a raucous voice named Simon, who had promised her all the money she wanted. When she succumbed, he had given her a large sum in cash, which changed into leaves on the following day. Her initiation was completed by a trip to the synagogue, riding on a large stick in front of Simon. 
At this meeting, she had unnatural intercourse with the devil, whose semen was ice cold. She did homage to him, kissing him on the left arm, which was also unnaturally cold, and he then marked her by biting the right side of her face. She renounced God in a loud voice, as she remembers well as though she had done it today, and also the Virgin. Otherwise, the synagogue was a rather pleasant affair, lit by a greenish fire, with singing and dancing to the accompaniment of tambourine music. The food, except for some hairy roast meat which she refused to eat, was good. White bread, apples, white wine. Not too many people were present, but Jeanette had recognised at least four of her acquaintances. When it ended, Simon gave Jeanette a small sick and a box of grease. In order to attend more synagogues, which were held on Thursdays and Fridays, she had only to rub the grease on the stick and say, White stick, black stick, carry me where you should. Go, in the devil's name, go. Finally, the devil stipulated that Jeanette must pay him a small annual tax, or cents, in token of homage. For her crimes, Jeanette was beheaded. The whole process from arrest to execution took just under two weeks. Several elements of this confession are common across Genevan trials. In this period, by far the most common method of maleficium was this sudden death of cattle, which makes sense. The mountainous countryside of Geneva was hardly conducive to large-scale agriculture as could be found elsewhere. Where there were large fields, destroyed harvests are the blame of witches. Where sheep and cows are the primary produce, their sudden illness and deaths took that place. What is unique to Geneva, however, in contrast to even the other Swiss regions, is the importance of the devil's tax. Montes states that this is not seen elsewhere. Is it simply a coincidence that Genevan trials included this financial element in their confessions, when modern Switzerland is famous for its banking? Yes, yes it is. Complete coincidence. By far the worst panics that took place in the region were focused on conspiracies of plague spreaders, or engraisseurs, the pronunciation of which I am almost certain I'm butchering. The first case of a plague panic was in 1530, when the administrator of a Genevan hospital and several of the staff were accused of deliberately spreading the disease in order to steal the belongings of the sick. After torture, they confessed to having given themselves over to the devil in return for a recipe to create the plague. They were subsequently put to death. By far the worst panic that afflicted Geneva was that of 1571 and 1572, when nearly a hundred people were executed or banished after being suspected of being engrasseurs. Monter points out that this was the only period where more than two dozen people were arrested for witchcraft in a single year. The people accused of being part of this plague cult were fairly stereotypical. They were mostly poor and mostly women. None of those suspected were in elite occupations or even particularly high in society. Of these, at least 45 were widows, with 14 spinsters and 35 married women living with their husbands. Notably, no midwives were suspected during this panic. Midwives often found themselves blamed for the deaths of newborns and mothers in other trials, and so their absence is interesting. Monta points out that of the thousand or so witchcraft cases which have been preserved from the region, the proportion of midwives accused of maleficium is minuscule. This correlates with the much greater prominence of dead cows in the records, especially in comparison with the number of cases brought about because of dead children. Similarly, no children were ever accused of witchcraft in Geneva, 
But that's not to say they were completely absent from the trials. Their role was to testify against adults, particularly their parents, who had either taken them to the Sabbath or, in later cases, possessed them with demonic powers. Monta takes serious issue with the, quote, old and tenacious legend, end quote, that Calvin's Geneva was excessive in its treatment of witches. Instead, he argues that post-Reformation Geneva was, quote, a fascinating encounter between the Calvinist system and a tenacious set of indigenous beliefs about witchcraft, end quote, with Calvinism eventually overcoming and adapting the native superstitions. While the Angressur trials were exceptionally brutal to their suspects, the importance is that these were indeed exceptional. The proportion of Angressurs that were killed was 30%, with many of those only receiving hasty trials and some being sent to their deaths without even confessing. But the number of executed in cases of ordinary witchcraft was as low as 20%. Out of every five people sent to trial for witchcraft, four escaped with their lives. After the great Angressur trial of the early 1570s and until 1662, Geneva only executed 29 of the 205 people tried for sorcery, putting the death rate at about 15%. In the entire period between the Reformation and the last known Genevan trial, there were at least 477 trials and 141 executions with an additional four suicides in prison. This gives the death rate of about 30%, which is not especially severe. When subtracting the exceptional Angressur panics, that drops the death rate to 21%. Now I know that all of these numbers and statistics are very hard to follow. The important thing to take away from this is just how lenient Geneva actually was. The idea that Geneva was overly harsh to its witchcraft suspects just doesn't measure up to the actual statistics held in the records. Now, that isn't to say that 79% of those accused got off scot-free, by far the most likely outcome of going to trial for witchcraft was not death, but banishment. Now, of course, being forcibly evicted from the community that your family has probably lived in for generations is hardly a good thing, and had the potential to lead to worse misfortune, but it was much better than being beheaded, hanged, or burnt. The reason for this relatively low rate of execution compared to elsewhere is perhaps down to the different methods taken by Genevan prosecutors and judges. For starters, a witchcraft accusation was treated as simply that, an accusation, not proof like elsewhere. When torture was applied, it was used sparingly, and interrogators rarely continued to torture a suspect until they received a suitable confession, as trials in the Empire were infamous for. The extent of the trials was further limited by the fact that when a suspect did break from torture and provided a list of accomplices, prosecutors were rarely inclined to actually arrest all of these new suspects simply on the words of another. Torture was notably considered imperfect in Geneva. In the case of a Francois Pelletier in the 1560s, she had confessed under torture only to retract her confession afterwards, only to repeat the confession once torture was reapplied. Germain Collodon, Geneva's foremost jurist found these confessions too different, and believed them to be driven solely by torture rather than being true. However, Francoise's reputation among her neighbours was particularly poor, and she was known as a herege, or heretic, and had been accused of specific acts of maleficium that were confirmed as having happened, so she could not be simply acquitted. Collardon came to the conclusion that further torture would gain them nothing, 
and that she did not meet the threshold of guilt necessary to condemn her to death, deciding that it was, quote, more just and wise to leave the said Francois to the judgment of God by only banishing her, end quote. As we've previously covered, Genevan witch beliefs in the 16th century are fairly standard for the time. Witches were believed to attend witch sabbats or synagogues, where they danced, committed terrible sins, and made their pacts with the devil. Geneva had the added element of the devil's tax, which could be an inversion of the tithe often paid to religious institutions. Accusations of maleficium were much more likely to be based on the deaths of cattle than elsewhere, and Geneva had a particular problem with engrasseurs, but otherwise, the Genevan experience was similar to its neighbouring states. This began to change, however, with the turn of the century. Not only did the beliefs in witchcraft begin to evolve, but while many of its neighbouring states would have some of their worst witch panics during this century, Geneva gradually reduced the number of convictions. The evolution of Genevan witch beliefs can be seen in the types of cases reaching trial. No longer were most trials based on the deaths of cows. Now, the single most common form of maleficium was that of demonic possession. This is quite a shift. It's not to say that possession had not been considered possible previously, and indeed, particularly children were seen as susceptible to such magic. But as recently as 1578, a man was put in prison for three days for having his son exercised by a Catholic priest. Now, this could be more about a conflict in religion than prosecutors not believing possession was possible. But in 1587, a widow was put under arrest for supposedly possessing a child with nine demons, yet she was released without being tortured. However, just 20 years later, demonic possession of children and women became a serious problem for Genevan justice. For example, in October of 1607, 17 people had to be quarantined while Calvinist preachers attempted to exercise their demons. Not because they were feared to be contagious, but that their possession was troubling enough that widespread knowledge of their predicament could cause unrest. And this fear was not without justice. Just weeks later, the Christmas celebrations were disrupted by the scandal surrounding the possessed Genevans, a disturbance that was repeated during the Easter celebrations of 1610. With the turn of the century, prosecutors also began to take the accusations of possessed victims with significantly fewer pinches of salt, and in many cases the denunciations given by possessees led to arrests and torture, with the majority then being banished. In the 1610 trials, things went even further. The victims pointed out their attacker's mark, the bodily blemish or growth, through which the witch fed her familiars or the devil himself, and in this case, this often led to execution rather than simple banishment. These events do appear to have struck a chord with more moderate influences within the Genevan justice system, and from here, Genevan surgeons and medical professionals were commissioned to thoroughly examine the suspected mark, Genevan practitioners, as you might expect, were somewhat more sceptical about the origin of whichever wart or scar the prosecutors found. They were thoroughly unwilling to assume that any such mark was supernatural in origin, and were consistently unprepared to accept that these growths were evidence of witchcraft. This can be seen in the trial of Michy Chauderon in 1652, where Genevan surgeons refused to agree with prosecutors that a bodily growth was her witch's mark. At this point, there had not been an execution for witchcraft in Geneva for over 25 years. This streak was sadly broken when prosecutors, unhappy with the obstructive behaviour of local medical professionals, commissioned a number of foreign surgeons to consult on the case. 
They examined Mishi and concluded that she did indeed have the devil's mark and so she was put to death, becoming the final executed victim of Geneva's witch trials. So 1652 was the end of Geneva's witch hunts? Oh no, 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 no. Witch trials continued until the 1680s, which, well, still several decades before its neighbours followed suit, was still in line with other communities in Christendom. What's fascinating about Geneva is that executions for witchcraft dried up relatively early, despite Geneva suffering from continental crises like the famines that ravaged Europe in the 1620s to local afflictions of plague in the 1630s. As we covered in the Century of Fire episodes, these were some of the greatest motivators of witch hunts, as an angry and desperate population sought someone to blame for their suffering. So why did Geneva not go the same way as Trier or Würzburg? There are certainly moderating influences from the medical field, as we've seen with the failed diagnoses of the witch's mark, but this cannot be the only cause, for the simple reason that foreign surgeons would surely have been contracted on more cases if the prosecutors were zealous, and this does not appear to have taken place. Indeed, the evolution of witch beliefs in Geneva, the casting off of the more fantastical elements of confessions such as the Sabbat, allude to a more sceptical legal system. In the words of Monta, what official Geneva deemed to be gross superstitions were eliminated. Such details as the orgies of the synagogues were seen as unedifying and legally superfluous. The witch's act of apostasy, her homage to the devil, were damning enough without the bizarre religious and sexual fantasies which had previously accompanied it. Discarding the reality of the Sabbath, which provided much of the basis for further denunciations, must have played a role in limiting the spread of the trials. If prosecutors believed a witch was acting alone, or in a small group, they would not demand dozens of names, and indeed, as we have seen, when such lists of denunciations were received, they were not often acted upon. Similarly, efforts has been undertaken by Genevan officials to properly educate the peasants in the countryside. Monta points out that the peasant population which answered to Geneva was only a fifth of the size of the city's population, and yet account for half of all witchcraft accusations. While this took generations, it appears that the pastors eventually accomplished their task to rid the countryside of its dangerous superstitions, admittedly at the cost of local folklore. The limited use of torture, in contrast to its prevalence in the trials of the empire, must also have reduced the number of confessions. Genevan prosecutors did not torture until the point of breaking where a suspect would admit to any and all charges. Where there was uncertainty in the guilt of the accused, such as not breaking under the torture, prosecutors would play it safe and have them banished from the territory instead. Even a woman accused of murdering several babies in 1630, whose judge observed, for more than 60 years, no trial has been so clear, and nobody so heavily accused as she is, escaped with her life. She was tortured, and survived the experience without confessing, and so was banished. A similar case took place a decade later, when a widow was accused of causing the deaths of countless livestock. After an investigation, the Genevan prosecutors did not find enough evidence to convict her, and ordered her banished. But her supposed victims petitioned the government to have her tortured. You know, just in case. She was duly tortured, but still did not confess, and the original banishment order went through. In the words of Monta, Given any reasonable grounds for doubt, Genevan judges preferred to leave suspected witches to the judgement of God by expelling them, since they knew that human justice is always imperfect. 
We will finish today with a look at a series of trials that took place in the second half of the 16th century in the county of Vaduz in the eastern Rhine Valley. I won't give a full history of the area, for reasons I'll explain later, but what is important for us to know is that in 1613, the county came into the hands of the Counts of Hohenems, who would rule it through these events. We know very little about the first two panics, the first taking place between 1648 and 1651, and a second in the 1660s, only that, in combination with the third and final trial in 1679 and 1680, almost a tenth of the entire population had been executed for witchcraft, with little focus on one sex or the other. Historian Thomas Robichaud argues that, when considering the numbers of trials compared to the size of the population, this tiny county of Vaduz had the most intense panics of all the German territories, more so than Trier, more so than Würzburg. The consequences of this trial led to the arrest of the Hohenem Count and the establishment of a state that still survives today. The most important player in this drama is perhaps Ferdinand Karl von Hohenems, Count of Vaduz. Ferdinand had racked up significant debts, and the finances of his administration were in a terrible condition. I've seen commentary suggesting that the trials that began in 1679 were started by the Count's governor, Dr. Romaricus Prugler von Herkelsberg, in order to seize the property of the convicted to bolster state finances. There is little to corroborate the governor initiating the trials themselves. Personally, I find it more likely that the start of the trial was organic, as we've seen elsewhere, where a local complaint of maleficium grew exponentially through confessions and denunciations. Whether or not the Count deliberately started the trials, all sources are in agreement that they deliberately escalated the proceedings, with a specific desire to seize the property of those convicted. Anna Schedlerin was a childless widow who had been denounced as a witch twice, and had subsequently been brought to trial in spring 1679. Working against her, was the fact that her mother had already been convicted and burned for being a witch, while her father was apparently of ill repute before his death. At her trial, Anna was tortured into confessing, only to retract her confession shortly afterwards and to forcefully decry those who had denounced her. Sadly, she was tortured again until she retracted her confession and confessed once more, whereupon she was burned. State officials confiscated 30 florins from her house, as well as 60 golden from selling items of cattle feed and other sundry items. Barbara Muraren, which I'm not sure I'm pronouncing correctly, had also been denounced twice, but she trumped Anna in the counter-convicted relatives handily. Barbara had lost both of her grandmothers and an aunt to the flames, and so prosecutors wasted no time torturing her once they got their hands on her in April of 1679. She subsequently admitted to taking part in a large number of sabbats and named her accomplices, and was subsequently executed. Another case, Maria Walserin, was arrested in July of 1680, and as was routine, put to torture, whereupon she confessed to having signed a contract with the devil in her own blood, and had used ointments and medicines given to her by the devil. She also admitted to causing the illness of several people through her magic, Notably, she was apparently unable to revoke her confession because she was, quote, forced to stand by the Spanish footwaters, end quote. Now, this is possibly my poor translation, but I have no idea what this means. The Spanish footwaters may very well have been a type of swimming test, as discussed in episode 6, The Synagogue of Satan, but this is purely speculation on my part. I haven't come across the term elsewhere, so who knows? Seriously, does anyone know? 
Answers on a postcard, if so. This won't help Maria, since she was duly executed that year. The fourth case that we know of, and the most important one for ending the trials, was that of Maria Eberlin von Planken, and all we know is that she managed to escape execution. Whether she was not convicted, was convicted and only banished, or performed a daring escape from the clutches of the evil count, we don't know. But she immediately reported her experience to the priest of treason, Valentin von Chris von Ort, who then took up the issue with the emperor, Leopold I. Von Chris apparently convinced the Emperor that the Vedut's trials were being conducted unlawfully and for material benefits, and what followed was a full-on imperial investigation. Count Ferdinand, who had previously answered solely to the Emperor, was placed under the authority of his powerful neighbour, the Prince Abbot of Kempton, Rupert of Bodmin, who would head an imperial commission to investigate the claims of injustice. With cooperation from the University of Salzburg, who found evidence in the trial records of gross miscarriages of justice, sadistic and unnecessary torture, and explicit proof of extortion. This evidence was brought before the Orlick Court, the supremely powerful legal body we have come across before, who deemed the Count's actions illegal and declared him deposed. Troops under the command of the Prince Abbot marched into Vaduz seized the former count and his highest officials, and placed them under arrest. Ferdinand remained in a Tyrolean prison cell until his death 16 years later, while the Prince Abbot handled his domains. Now, if we are sceptical, we might consider that the Prince Abbot might benefit from a guilty verdict against his neighbour, and yet there is no reason to doubt that the bulk of the evidence was authentic and the claims of tyranny true. The Orlick court was a heavy hitter, unlikely to be easily swayed by the Prince Abbot's influence, and likewise the University of Salzburg was esteemed for its expertise. Whatever the Prince Abbot's desires, his case against Ferdinand was built on a substantial foundation. So why did I say that this trial established a modern state? Well, the Prince Abbot was not allowed to keep hold of the Dutz and the other former lands of Ferdinand, and they ended up going back to the Hohenems dynasty, particularly to Ferdinand's cousin, Count Jakob Hannibal. But Ferdinand still had many debts, and now his former victims required compensation, and so Hannibal was rather eager to palm the lands off. Over the course of the following three decades, Hannibal gradually sold the former titles of his cousin off to Hans Adam I of the House of Liechtenstein. This was indeed the founding of the state of Liechtenstein, that tiny double landlocked country that survives today, sandwiched between Switzerland and Austria. So there you go, a witch trial ended up changing the map of Europe, albeit in a particularly small way. The reason that I didn't go into great detail about the history of Vaduz and later Liechtenstein is because I have to highly recommend the 80 Days podcast, hosted by Luke Kelly, Mark Boyle and Joe Byrne. Joe was kind enough to send me a few of the sources he found during his visit to Liechtenstein for the 80 Days episode. These were the cases of Maria, Barbara and Anna. I've listened to 80 Days since I found out they'd done an episode on the Isle of Man, where I'm from, and like most people from that small island, I jumped at the opportunity to hear anyone else talk about it. It certainly helped that the show is highly entertaining and well-researched, even if Mark basically says that everyone from the Isle of Man is weird, which, as the host of a history podcast, I can't really dispute. I can attest to the standards of the research as well. For example, civilian internment during the World Wars was the topic of my postgrad thesis. And I spent many, many hundreds of hours researching it. But the guys on the 80 Days podcast don't get a single thing wrong, and it's almost annoying how easy they make it look. 
If you'd like to learn about places as varied as Liechtenstein, the Isle of Man, Liberia, Nauru, Newfoundland, Lapland and the walled city of Kowloon, go have a listen to 80 Days an Exploration Podcast, which you can find through all good podcatchers and at the website 80dayspodcast.com. To finish off the admin part of today's episode, I've been made aware of a couple of iTunes reviews for the show. The first is from Crystal B from the United States, who gives the show five stars and says, Really been enjoying listening to this, very conversational and interesting, but not fluffy. Thank you for that, Crystal. The second is from 753SBQR, also from the US, who gives the show three stars and says, This is a well-researched podcast. Unfortunately, each episode is little more than a litany of details without any real analysis. Essentially, the listener is confronted with a never-ending amount of interesting minutiae, but does not obtain any comprehensive understanding of the causes and effects of the witchcraft phenomenon. I genuinely appreciate the feedback, it's constructive and I can learn from it. I did try to cover the main theories of why witch panics occurs during the Sparks and Kindling episode, but perhaps I've relied too much on this in subsequent topics and simply assumed that this was fresh in everyone's mind, which isn't fair. Going forward, I'll try and be a bit more analytical on each topic rather than just relying on an episode I published months ago. I hope 753SPQR is still listening and that the show becomes more to his liking. Next time, we leave the early modern era behind and go back in time to the High Middle Ages to cover the rise and downfall of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, better known to us as the Knights Templar. Royal plots, politics, religion and just outright greed all bring the powerful Holy Order to its knees. They were accused of terrible heretical crimes by their enemies and their trials involve many similarities to the later trials of the Century of Fire, including repeated torture, legal injustice, and of course, burnings at the stake. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>